Hi, you are listening to the VJ Himong podcast. In a roundtable discussion chaired by Amer Zaydan, VJ Himong are delighted to be joined by four of the pioneers in MDS research Gulam Mufti, Peter Greenberg, Mario Cazzola, and John Bennett to discuss the early days of MDS recognition, diagnosis, classification, and therapy. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us in this episode of MDS, MDS Sessions, VG Him Hong. So today, my name is Amr Zaidan. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Yale University and uh, director of hematology early therapeutics research. And today our episode is going to be about MDS history and how MDS evolved throughout the last 50 years and became a recognized entity. And Many of you might know that MDS actually has lagged behind many of the other hematologic malignancies in terms of understanding of its uh, biology, uh, in terms of understanding of its uh, diagnostic process classification and the risk stratification. It actually was not recognized as a separate or as a true cancer until the 21st century in the year 2001 when the WHO designated it as a cancer and that allowed a lot of understanding of its epidemiology. Um, however, there was a lot of research going on in, in those years to try to move the field forward. And some of the pioneers who helped move this um, understanding uh, were highly influential and uh, their contributions still stand out until today. And some of them are still very active in the field. So today I'm very uh, honored and privileged to have four of the pioneers of MDS who will be sharing their thoughts about the history of MDS and how did we get to where we are today and how the future is looking. Um, so I'm uh, pleased to have Dr. Mario Cazzola, who's a professor of hematology at the Fondazione RCCS at the Policlinico Sant Matteo in Pavia, Italy. I hope I did not butcher that. Um, Dr. Peter Greenberg, Professor Emeritus and the director of the Stanford MDS Center in Stanford, California. Dr. Gulam Mufti, who's the former head of the hematologic medicine at Guy's Kings and St. Thomas Hospitals, King's College London, as well as uh, currently being the director of the King's Health Partner and PMS Cell Gene Research Program and clinical consultant in hematology and oncology. And last but certainly not least, Dr. John Bennett, who is a professor emeritus of medicine, pathology, and laboratory medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, so I'm going to start by showing a couple of uh, slides looking at some of the early uh, recognitions of, of MDS. Uh, some of the viewers might know that leukemia as a disease entity was recognized in uh, the year 1849 um, by Virchow-Rudloff as well as another famous John Bennett um, when the initial descriptions of leukemia were made. However, MDS uh, was not recognized as a separate disease entity for um, much later. So here what you can see is some of the early uh, description of MDS. So the term refractory anemia, which still stands up with us today, was actually coined in the 1930s um, by uh, Dr. Uh, Cornelius Rhodes. And this term actually exists until today. The idea is that anemia that results from MDS does not respond to liver extracts, which what they used to uh, treat anemia with, and it was called refractory anemia. Subsequently, it was recognized that some of those cases 
pre-exist before acute leukemia, and the term pre-leukemia also was coined, um, as you can see in this slide from the 1950s. So pre-leukemia is still a common term that's used to refer to MDS, although currently we understand that it's a cancer and it can be quite aggressive as acute leukemia. Uh, another term that comes often with MDS is uh, ring sideroplasts, which are iron deposits uh, around, uh, in the uh, around the mitochondria, and that's a disease entity that also was described in, in the 1950s. Um, the definition of the deletion 5Q syndrome also subsequently uh, came in the 1970s before we even understood what is the pathogenesis of uh, deletion 5Q and how does it contribute to development of this specific subtype of MDS. So I'd like to start with Dr. John Bennett uh, and take us through those uh, days, basically, in terms of how the understanding of MDS uh, has evolved and how does refractory anemia with excess uh, blast, uh, that term was coined, and uh, maybe take us through the initial um, definitions of uh, the French-American-British classification, which has been pivotal and still largely used, actually, until today uh, in terms of uh, classification of MDS. So, Dr. Bennett? So, we, uh, going back now over half a century, in the uh, early 70s, uh, I met George Flandrin, uh, who was a uh, metapathologist in those days. You called yourself what you would, there were no boards, but he primarily function as a pathologist, although he did indeed treat patients as well. And I met him uh, at a, uh, I think the second or third tutorial in Chicago that was run by Henry Rappaport, a well-known established pathologist at the University of Chicago. And uh, he was interested in leukocyte enzymes as I was because we had published uh, in the, uh, at the same period of time, a new stain for doing leukocyte alkaphosphatase in patients with chronic myeloid leukemia. So I visited him in his laboratory and spent about a week in Paris at Saint Louis Hospital and met his associate, Marie-Therese Daniel at the same time. And uh, we got to talking about the fact that we had no common language between countries about various types of either acute leukemias like myeloid leukemias or the so-called pre-leukemic syndromes, smoldering leukemias, et cetera, and thought it might be useful to collect cases and meet together and see if we couldn't come up with a uh, classification that would be uh, useful. Uh, we met, I met Claude Sultan, uh, Crete Hospital in Paris at another meeting uh, sponsored by Dr. Rappaport. And he and Dreyfus, who was his clinician, had recently published a paper uh, on what they called RAEM, -E refractory anemia with excess myeloblasts, and tried to separate that uh, from patients with chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. Uh, so we eventually formed a group that included the three uh, 
French physicians, uh, David Galton and Dan Katowski from Great Britain, and myself and Javi Gronick from the US and had a series of meetings uh, which led to our first publication on AML and ALL in the British Journal of Hematology in 76, which became mm. the number one quoted article that the British Journal of Hematology has ever had. Uh, in that paper, we identified a group of patients that we reviewed morphologically that did not fulfill the criteria for acute myeloid leukemia, which in those days, believe it or not, was 50% blasts and promyelocytes. Subsequently dropped to 30%, subsequently dropped to 20% by the new WHO criteria. And we included the patients that Claude Seltan had described and renamed them REEB, refractory anemia with excess blasts, uh, preserved the refractory anemia component because all these patients were by definition anemia and refractory to the ordinary hematemics that were available like B12, folic acid, and iron, uh, and separated them from chronic myelomonocytic leukemia uh, and arbitrarily chose a breakpoint of 1,000 monocytes per microliter, which was about two standard deviations above the upper limit of normal for most university uh, laboratories. So that paper was uh, published in 76. And then in 82, uh, we expanded the definition to include patients that had relatively few blasts and called those patients either refractory anemia or refractory anemia with ring sideroblasts. The ring sideroblasts were defined as 15% or greater because in Claude Sultan's laboratory, uh, they had a very large number of patients who behaved quite well, who had very few blasts in their marrow. And the separation between those and those who did not do very well turned out to be on their scale at about 15%. Most of these patients had more than 15%. So that gave us sort of two categories of the several that we mentioned, and the others were a RAB, and then RAB in transformation because we were trapped between a very high-grade neoplasm uh, between 20 and 30 percent and the cutoff of 30 percent blasts because some of these patients actually behave more like they were smoldering than behaving like patients with uh, acute leukemia. So that paper was uh, published in, in 82. Uh, revised again in 85. And during this whole period of time, uh, gradually people began to adjust to having this classification and a meeting was held and maybe Gullam can discuss it, the first international MDS meeting that we held in uh, Austria uh, that he and Franz Schmazel jointly sponsored. And it brought together for the first time a group of investigators to present some of their early publications. Yep, that one there is. Yeah, it's okay. It just went by. It showed showed some of us having dinner. Uh, 
in '88. Uh, uh, in '88, right in Innsbruck. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that was the first uh, meeting, and actually, yes. and, uh, we'll we'll talk that's about the meetings that's as well. That sort of sort of triggered uh, a burst of energy and activity by a variety of different investigators, and then we had a subsequent meeting in Bournemouth, and then three years that uh, Terry Hamlin organized, and three years later, uh, really the meeting that set us all off to establish a, a foundation. And a lot of that effort uh, was a result of Peter Greenberg being interested in why a study that he was organizing and doing uh, showed a discrepancy between patients who seemed to should have behaved better and wondered whether there was uh, some way to better develop a prognostic scoring system and the Amgen Corporation was kind enough to allow us to sponsor a review of oh, yeah, 600 patients or so that he'll talk about in a moment uh, to develop a prognostic scoring system that sort of went beyond the FAB, French American British uh, group, although that system was prognostic uh, and was able to clearly identify patients who would do very well, low-risk patients with refractory anemia or refractory anemia with ring blasts from patients who had excess blasts greater than 5% and less than, less than 20%. And you can see uh, on this survival curve, uh, basically that basically just using a pure morphologic classification, including the DEL5Q group, which was in blue, uh, was able to clearly uh, separate patients into more favorable categories and those who behaved extremely badly. And some were actually had a median survival of even less than, than six months or so. Which is amazing, yeah. So I, I think we will be covering all of those uh, points, I think, in terms of the MDS Foundation formation and the annual meeting or the, sorry, the biannual meeting, as well as uh, risk uh, stratification. But before we go there, and I, I think as you pointed out, not many conditions like MDS um, have very significant correlation between morphology and survival, as can be seen in, in, in the right. survival curve. And I think right. this took us to the WHO classification. And I, I would love to, if Dr. Mario Cazzola um, can take us into um, these days in terms of how um, the WHO uh, classification uh, was proposed and um, um, the early 2000s around the time in which MDS was formally recognized as a cancer and what brought that uh, in, into the current that, scene. That, that's, a great, that's a great picture because it shows Mario right there in the front. Yep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> standing up nice and straight. Yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of other world-renowned individuals that Indeed. you probably recognize without calling out, calling out, their, calling out their names. Yeah. Dr. Clara is um, close to me. Yeah. <clears throat> Clara Blue. Okay. The WHO classification was uh, proposed in uh, 2001 
they revised uh, the FAB classification with uh, the aim of uh, integrating uh, morphologic and genetic information into a working clinical tool. Once uh, the WHO classification was published, Luca Malcovati and I uh, studied uh, the prognostic impact of the WHO classification. We found uh, significant differences in survival between the WHO subtypes and uh, showed that uh, the WHO classification of NDS could be a useful basis for clinical decision making. We, continue, we published this paper in the JCO and extended our studies and found that the most important prognostic variables in MDS at that time were WHO subgroups karyotype, and especially transfusion requirement. <clears throat> we combined these parameters and uh, developed uh, the WPSS, which is a dynamic prognostic scoring system that uh, provides uh, an accurate prediction of survival and the risk of leukemic evolution in MDS patients at any time during the course of the disease. Also, this paper was published in the JCO. And uh, a few year, years later, the revised APSS was developed, but uh, Peter Greenberg will talk about this. Yeah, so I think since we are speaking about risk stratification and I will get to Dr. Mufti subsequently about the uh, uh, meetings. I think Dr. Mufti also uh, sounds like he describes one of the very first prognostic scoring systems that um, this is another slide courtesy of the, uh, David Stinsman, which is showing actually many of the prognostic scoring systems. There are like more than 20 that have been developed over the years. And I think uh, people might understand why this is needed in MDS because there are not many conditions or other cancers in which the treatment can vary all the way from observing the patient every three months and doing nothing, all the way to recommending allogenic bone marrow transplantation from, from the initial visit. So it's a, a disease in which risk stratification is clearly very important. And uh, maybe Dr. Mufti and uh, Dr. Greenberg can take us through the evolution of these uh, risk stratification scores from, from the first ones that were described and uh, the WHO prognostic scoring system that Dr. Katsola talked about until the um, revised IPSS and the IPSS, which are the most commonly uh, used scoring system these days. Okay, Sh shall I go first, Peter? Sure. Yes. You? Sure, go, go. Okay, well, so my journey began at Hammersmith Hospital with uh, David Galton uh, telling me uh, that uh, there is this disease called myelodysplastic syndrome, I think you ought to do some research on it, but you ought to go to a place where there are a lot of elderly people because this is a disease of elderly. And uh, that's why I was given a grant by Leukemia Research Fund to go to Bournemouth, which is where people go to retire. Uh, 
And I went to Bournemouth and indeed there was a lot of MDS there. And I had at the back of my mind um, a simple scoring system that took um, note of uh, uh, peripheral blood features uh, like hemoglobin, uh, uh, neutrophil count and platelet count and blast cell percentages in the marrow. We also were doing cytogenetics at that time, but that was relatively less uh, commonly done. So uh, on the basis of these four common factors, which was blasts and the peripheral blood count, I put together the Bournemouth score and I know published it in British Journal of Hematology. And then soon after that, there were a series of other scores that were published. And as you can see from this slide, interest in MDS increased and the Spanish score included cytogenetics as well, which is there. So by the time we came to 1988 uh, to the first international symposium, there was already a little bit of buzz around in terms of prognostication beyond the FAB classification in the form of various scoring systems. But most of these scoring systems were named after the cities uh, where people were working. Then uh, I think uh, it was kind of recognized that uh, these parameters are important in terms of prognostication in addition to uh, what has been mentioned by John about FAB classification. And that's where uh, Peter comes in because it was Peter who got all these groups together uh, which are listed on the slide. And we all uh, kind of were very keen to put together a scoring system whereby everybody would have one scoring system to use. And Peter then took over uh, all the data collection and he will talk about how then we came finally to IPSS scoring system. Uh, I won't talk about the meetings first, but I'll talk about the meetings and the rest of the journey a bit later on, if time permits, but I'll hand over to Peter now. Well, similar to Gulam in a way, um, my journey began um, when I was a fellow, hematology fellow at Stanford, in which my boss, um, Stan Schreier said, we have this disease, um, pre-leukemia, why don't you take a look at it? And at that time, I was interested in regulation, hemopoietic re regulation, and I was working on the in vitro culture system uh, that had just been described. Uh, it had been described by Bradley and Metcalf and Plesnick and Sachs uh, for the use in mouse to look at in vitro hematopoietic regulation but there was no human system. Uh, serendipitously though, the year of my fellowship after I had begun work with the system for mouse, Bill Robinson went to Metcalf's lab and did develop a system for human hemopoietic cell growth. So I 
then adapted uh, the system I was working on in vitro in my lab in, at Stanford as a fellow to human, for humans, using that background. And worked for some years in the 70s um, on a variety of myeloid diseases. Um, uh, first paper in 1971 in the New England Journal uh, came out um, that described differences and similarities between so-called pre-leukemia and AML. And that is the myeloid colony forming cells of preleukemic cells often acted similarly to those of AML. And yet we had a different disease trajectory. And the question was why? Now at that time I had a fellow, um, Rob Negrin, who now is the head of transplantation uh, at Stanford. And together we looked at the use of some of the growth factors that were involved in hemopoiesis in vitro and did some of the first studies looking at GCSF. At that time, it was uh, colony forming activity or colony stimulating activity, not even a factor. But ultimately it became a factor. And so MGen had this molecule GCSF and we thought that um, this could be a useful differentiation inducing factor. And if it was, it might decrease replication of the abnormal stem cell. And so we began a study and it was a international study looking at the effect of GCSF in vivo in higher risk MDS patients, those with RABE and RABE-T. 100 patients were randomly assigned to observation versus uh, GCSF. And lo and behold, we found that no, it did not decrease evolution to AML, but it did not increase evolution to AML. However, there was some change in overall survival, uh, better in the observation group, which really didn't make a lot of sense uh, because what turned out was the small numbers of deaths in the observation group were due to either patients having fallen and hit their head or having died as a bone marrow after bone marrow transplant. So at that time, um, this was uh, around between 89 and 93, yeah. the various scoring systems that you see here had come about and it was ver a veritable Tower of Babel in which each group was making um, some degree of advance, but the question is how could we put them together? And so I spoke with John Bennett and a number of other people and the study with GCSF that I had done incorporated a large number of observation patients in the observation arm that we used, as well as uh, the, patient, the patients that were involved in the previously published studies from England, Dr. Mufti's group, as well as uh, some others, France, Germany, Japan, and Spain. And each of those groups had previously uh, generated a scoring system with some differences in the variables that they found valuable. You put uh, all of those into a common grouping, uh, and this was then 
uh, analyzed with the help of John and Chris Cox at the University of Rochester. Yeah. And this ultimately generated um, the um, IPSS. And we discussed this at the um, MDS Symposium in Chicago, 1994. That meeting, uh, we discussed this. And then ultimately, uh, it was published in Blood in, in, in 1997. Ultimately, um, another 15 years went by, and there were again a series of studies suggesting the IPSS could be improved by a variety of other factors. And so we met again uh, as a group, and we had been meeting for years at the International MDS Symposium. And ultimately, with Heinz Tuschler as the statistician, put together data from a number of other groups and ours, and moving from approximately 700 to now um, several thousand patients, 7,000 patients, um, we then uh, analyzed uh, variables. And the particular change from IPSS was depth of cytopenias the specific cytogenetic abnormalities that had been previously uh, orchestrated by a professor, uh, uh, well, Dr. Schantz, as well as um, Detlef Haas. And those plus the depth and proportion of blasts were used and were found to generate a more valuable uh, scoring system, and that was what generated the IPSSR. I think this is an amazing story of how, like, collaboration between investigators, you know, across the world can really help move things forward. And I think several of you have talked about the um, international symposium on MDS and. Uh, having like a specific meeting um, on, on such a rare disease entity and the creation of the MDS Foundation, which seems both of those factors have really helped to move the understanding of the disease and uh, prognostication uh, very well. So uh, I'm, I would love to hear from you about how uh, this init the initial planning and how did the foundation and the meetings came about and how do you see them evolve over the last um, now 40 years almost or 35 years? Well, the, the foundation uh, came out of basically that, that 94 meeting uh, in which we felt the need for uh, helping patients as well as educating physicians and uh, we were fortunate enough at that time, the, the early trials of new agents in MDS to get significant support uh, from industry and uh, were able to move forward with a series of meetings uh, as, as well as educational pamphlets, uh, patient advocacy groups, uh, supporting care groups with uh, dedicated nurse oncologists who uh, helped a lot of the patient anxieties that develop with a disease that is hard to pronounce. And I have uh, carried this forward up to the 
present day. We, we tended to choose uh, meetings in the cities that had dedicated programs around the world as uh, most in Europe, uh, one in the US, uh, one in uh, Japan and Nagasaki, about every two years or so. And these were tremendously exciting meetings because not only were there overview talks, uh, a lot of abstracts, but an opportunity to present ideas about where the future uh, uh, was heading in this, in this field. Uh, the abstracts were published in uh, leukemia research for, for many years, which uh, Elsevier supported and was supported as well of the foundation. Uh, we had really very good attendance, uh, as high as 1,200 to as low as seven or 800. And the meetings lasted anywhere from three to five days. Uh, really non-competitive with the uh, ESH meetings and ASCO and ASH held at a different time of year and very well attended. Yeah, indeed. And it's actually one of the meetings that hopefully will manage to skip the pandemic and continue to be in um, in an in, in-person format because I think this is such a great venue for interaction. So the next one is going to be in September in Toronto. Uh, hopefully it will continue to happen in, in person. And maybe I, I go to Dr. Katsola. Um, uh, I mean, can I just add about the meetings? I mean, can I just about add about the meetings? Of course. Yeah. One contribution. Absolutely. I, I think uh, in terms of the start of the meetings, which was 1988, but it was actually 1986 that I met with Franz Schmazel, and he is um, an Austrian hematologist, and his main interest was um, uh, staining peripheral blood and marrow with peroxidase stains, and one of his key findings had been a partial peroxidase deficiency as <coughs> by staining of the peripheral blood and marrows in patients with MDS. So he had sent me a little booklet, book which had pictures of this partial peroxidase deficiency uh -huh. in the way he had. And then I wrote to him and I said, well, look, I am interested in MDS and uh, I've just become a consultant at King's College London. Uh, wouldn't it be a good idea to have a meeting on uh, this disease? It could be held in London, but I was still quite junior. And I thought it would be a daunting task to arrange a meeting in London, having just become a consultant in 85. Um, so he said, well, let's do it in Innsbruck. So we then uh, put together a program and uh, I think all of us uh, here, as well as many more who are not here, uh, took part in that Innsbruck meeting, which made a huge loss, which took us three years to actually pay the, the debt that we had <laughs> on that meeting. And that is why you find that there is a three-year gap between the Innsbruck meeting and the Bournemouth meeting. 
<clears throat> what that meeting didn't take place, it was originally, I had said, in fact, I remember summing up at the Innsbruck meeting and saying that we will have another meeting in uh, 1990, only to find out later that it will take us a year more to pay the debt off. And then we had Terry Hamblin, who again was a great enthusiast of MDS, partly because I had been there, and he then helped organize the 1991 meeting. And since uh, that was okay, it was still going low key up to that point. As John says, that the big change in MDS took place where there was interest and beginning to be global interest really was the Chicago 1994 meeting. And that was, I think, a game changer in terms of getting our American friends and colleagues involved and interested in this disease, and then subsequently led to MDS Foundation, as well as the IPSS score and all the other developments since. I think that's my recollection of that period, although we will probably come to genetics and drugs probably later on. Sure, yeah. Did you go to all 15 of them, Dr. Mufti? I think I've been to all of them, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, I haven't missed any of them, yeah. That's great, yeah. So uh, I think as we start talking about uh, some of the biology, a little bit of the disease and the understanding now that we covered the uh, morphology and some of the risk stratification. Uh, Dr. Katsola, I, I really loved your review that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine of MDS. Yeah. I thought it was one of the um, most comprehensive reviews and the supplement is a resource by itself. So I really thank you for all the time and effort you had to put on that, and I think it's a great reference for anybody who wants to um, have like Indeed. a very concise summary of MDS. So uh, um, you mentioned in that review the origin of the word myelodysplastic syndromes, and it has been always very confusing as someone who uh, deals with patients every day, and I can tell you not only patients, but also oncologists and hematologists who don't specialize in this cancer are really puzzled and confused about what MDS is and uh, whether it's a cancer or not, and um, uh, myelodysplastic means abnormal maturation, but the syndrome is always tricky. And there has been uh, suggestions that it should be really myelodysplastic cancers or myelodysplastic neoplasms rather than syndromes. And uh, given all of your involvement in the biology and how things evolved over the last 30 or 40 years with, with the disease, what's your take on uh, the so different um, um, more uh, biologic uh, processes that underline this disease probably contributing to why it's so heterogeneous in terms of presentation and outcomes. Okay. I will um, discuss at this point uh, making uh, the case of uh, myelodysplastic syndrome with ring sideroblast. My journey in, uh, in NDS started uh, quite early in 1971-72 uh, when uh, I was uh, a medical student and uh, I was preparing my medical thesis. My boss invited me to prepare a thesis on uh, the mechanisms of anemia in patients with refractory anemia 
with the ring sideroblasts. At that time called uh, siderocrestic anemia from uh, the, German, the German adjective uh, siderocrestische. So I uh, studied a series of patients, all uh, had uh, erythroid expansion, renin sideroblasts, low reticulocyte index, and I concluded that ineffective erythropoiesis uh, was the mechanism of anemia. Then I started to use um, ferrokinetics for evaluating uh, the pathogenesis of anemia. And again, studied uh, these patients and found that uh, ineffective erythropoiesis was indeed uh, the major mechanism of anemia. And published uh, this paper in uh, the British Journal of Hematology in uh, 1982. I, uh, this, I studied uh, the natural history of the disease and found that these patients uh, had a relatively benign disorder. The major problems being uh, transfusion requirement and parenchymal iron overload. In a subset of patients, uh, leukemic transformation uh, occurred. So when uh, we decided uh, to study the molecular basis of the disease uh, in uh, 2010, in collaboration uh, with the Sanger Institute, I suggested uh, to focus on these patients with renal sideroblasts because they had a unique phenotype and this could make it easy to identify the mutant gene. And indeed, we found somatic mutations in SF3B1, a spliceosome gene. At that time, uh, it was unknown that uh, genes of the spliceosome could uh, have uh, somatic mutations. And uh, we established uh, a closer relationship between somatic mutation of SF3B1 and the myelodysplasia with sideroblast. And the, the paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine at the same time Seishi Ogawa published a paper in Nature showing that uh, mutations of uh, spliceosome genes were associated with uh, myeloid malignancies, uh, mainly with myelodysplastic syndromes. More recently, again in collaboration with uh, Luca Malcovati, we found that uh, SFRB1 mutant NDS is a distinct nosologic entity, normally associated with a benign course, although commutations in some genes, namely RANX1 or STAC2, may involve a worse clinical outcome, especially leukemic evolution. More recently, Luca Malcovati and I did uh, 
a co very large collaborative study showing that SF3B1 mutant MDS is a distinct nosologic entity associated with a, a favorable uh, clinical course. Although commutations in genes like uh, RANX1 or STAG2 may involve uh, a worse uh, outcome, specifically leukemic evolution. Very recently, I participated in a clinical trial on the use of losfatercept in the treatment of uh, patients uh, with low-risk MDS, most of uh, whom uh, had uh, MDS with renin-sideroblast. And uh, losfatercept proved to be able to reduce uh, the severity of anemia by targeting ineffective erythropoiesis. So we have defined really a new nosologic, a distinct nosologic entity, which has a specific molecular basis and currently also a specific treatment. Yeah, and I think the evolution has been um, on therapeutic level, we'll talk about this in the last segment, has been um, very uh, accelerated in the last few years. However, before we go to that, I want to go to Dr. Greenberg and talk uh, about all these molecular alterations that Dr. Katsula has mentioned. And we had a, an explosion of these between the late 80s uh, to now, where we have more than 40, 50 recurrently abnormal genes. And we actually struggle all the time about how do we integrate these in the um, daily care of patients because they have not been formally integrated in any of the uh, prognostic scoring system. And uh, the IWG has been leading a, uh, an effort, uh, a similar international effort to integrate those markers. So maybe you can uh, talk uh, about this process and how has it been going? Yes. Um, over the years, uh, through the MDS Foundation, um, the International Working Group for Prognosis and MDS um, was generated and persisted in discussing various therapeutic and clinical options. Ben Ebert uh, and his group, uh, and this was Raf Behar and Ben's paper in the New England Journal, I believe the year, I'm not sure of the year, but it was um, perhaps 2011 or so, um, indicated that there were five genes that were involved in major implications for prognosis and MDS. When that paper was presented, um, and this was a presentation at the American Society of Hematology, I subsequently spoke with Ben, and we decided that we needed to put together another group to analyze these mutations uh, for the large group of IWGPM. And we obtained a grant from Celgene uh, through the MDS Foundation to do this. And then over the next um, subsequent years, which has come to fruition here through the work um, with Eli Papo-Manuel at Sloan Kettering, 
there has been the accession of over 3,000 patients and sequencing of those genes to uh, modify the IPSSR into a molecular prognostic system. Uh, there's a working group, including Mario and a number of others, um, for helping uh, Ellie and her group. The leading person at her group is Elsa Bernard uh, to put together the molecular underpinning of MDS. So far, things have developed into a potential reclassification of subgroups of MDS uh, defined by mutations and co-mutations uh, that are relevant for MDS. Number one, and secondly, potential prognostic implications to modify the IPSSR. This is a work in progress but within the next few months, it's likely that this will bear fruition. At the moment, there appears to be approximately 40 genes that are important for this analysis. And these will be weighted statistically for uh, evaluating prognostic implications for MDS. So again, it's an international group um, composed of people such as uh, Mario, Eva uh, Hellstrom, um, Seychelles Gawa, Raf Behar, Ben Ebert, Luca Malcolvati, and others as a working group. But the entire International Working Group for Prognosis and MDS is engaged in that they have provided uh, patients and samples for this effort. So we believe that this will likely come out as a paper this year or be submitted this year and likely be presented at the Toronto meeting somewhat, but also at the American Society of Hematology by the end of the year. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, many people have been waiting for this and I think it would be a huge uh, improvement into the risk prognostication. Um, Dr. Mufti, I, I, maybe I can follow on that theme. And you know, one of the frustrating things I think um, during my uh, fellowship has been uh, basically uh, a lot of work on prognosis and stratification, which is of course very important, but at the end of the day, we are always stuck with the same drugs basically, especially for higher risk patients, uh, which are the two, um, hypomethylating agents, which were approved in 2004 and 2006 in the US. And we really did not have much approved until this year or last year, sorry, 2020, when we had two drugs approved. One of them is an oral version of decitabine and the other is losbetercept that Dr. Casola alluded to. And I think a big part of that uh, uh, difficulty in getting new drugs has been uh, the biology of the disease, which seems very heterogeneous and trying to treat MDS as one entity, higher risk or lower risk, is probably not the best way to do it. And we should probably define it molecularly or by the abnormal pathways, similar to how it's done in other diseases with IDH inhibitors, with uh, FLIT in 
three inhibitors, but those biomarkers or driver mutations are not very common compared to AML. So how do you see um, all of the biology work that you and others have been doing contributing to new uh, treatment paradigms for patients? And do you see that bone marrow transplant will go away as something that we always say that the only potential cure for MDS? Uh, that's been a journey too for me. And I will um, start from the beginning in a way as to how I got interested in the immunology part of it. So when I was in Bournemouth and doing the Bournemouth scoring system, at the same time, I noticed that a number of patients who had MDS had also features of autoimmunity. And also there were a number of patients who had coexistent MDS and other neoplasms, mainly hematological neoplasms in the form of either myeloma or other B-cell malignancies. So this was published again in British Journal of Hematology. I think it was in 1986 in two-part paper. And just thinking back at that, I kind of uh, still remember getting uh, these autoimmune screens and immunoglobulin levels in chronic myelomonocytic leukemia being high and all that that convincing myself at that stage that immune mechanisms had something to do with uh, why the disease occurs predominantly when we are older and why there are these associated uh, autoimmune features with it. And uh, I remember the first patient that I saw uh, with MDS was a patient who David Galton told me to look after with pyoderma gangrenosum and MDS. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of the immunological interest. And then, as you said, we had really nothing in terms of medications until um, we kind of, John Bennett will remember this, that we thought, well, low-dose RSC, because Lotum and Sachs, which has been mentioned, had shown that in cell lines, uh, low doses of cytosine or abinocide lead to differentiation of some of these cell lines. And he had indeed shown in a letter to British Journal of Hematology that that induced uh, a remission in, I think it was three patients. And that led to a clinical trial on both sides of the Atlantic of low-dose RSE in MDS. Uh, with some interesting results in high-risk MDS cases, particularly those with lower blast, lower cellularity in the marrow. Uh, but really, there was not; a, it was not a game changer. It was quite clear, although it did have an effect, but not a differentiation induction effect that uh, had been shown in cell lines. And that's when I got interested in transplantation, or and I think we then. It was a huge struggle, I have to say, to convince people, certainly in the UK, that MDS is a disease where the only treatment that can cure it and should be given is bone marrow transplantation. And I think that kind of was synchronous with the advances in transplantation, particularly with the advent of reduced intensity condition transplants and particularly in Europe with the advent of CAMPATH and CAMPATH in the conditioning regimes or ATG in conditioning regimes 
And that led really to a huge amount of interest in the treatment of MDS uh, with allogenic stem cell transplantation, so much so that it has almost become number one indication for allogeneic hemopoietic stem cell transplant. So that kind of clearly indicated that immunological uh, uh, cure of MDS was possible. So which uh, kind of uh, deflects you into the second area of related interest of mine, which has been that what is the role of immunology, uh, both in terms of inflammatory aging and the causation of either clonal hemopoiesis or MDS, and also uh, the generation of some of the mutations that you have on the slide, uh, particularly in relation to inflammatory microenvironment that occurs with aging. And that, together with what Mario was mentioning in terms of um, RARS and uh, where the cell of origin is and the, what the consequences of these mutations may be in terms of the immune response, that is something that's where I think understanding what these mutations do. And my own feeling, and it's a personal bias, is that we have probably been um, corrupted by BCR able as a target, well, you have a target, you have a drug and you cure the disease in high proportion of cases. I personally think that uh, that's probably not going to be the case in uh, MDS um, or even AML that has arisen out of an MDS background. But I think it is essential that we continue to study uh, this Obviously, the role of these mutations, I mean, even, even in pseudoblastic anemia, which Mario has brilliantly uh, worked on and kind of identified all many of the steps in it, we still don't know for sure why does a sidroblast become a sidroblast and how can we undo that? And Luspartasa has been a big step in terms of symptomatic improvement. But again, in terms of actually understanding and deciphering the whole of the disease, both in pseudoblastic anemia as well as in non-pseudoblastic types, I personally believe that we have a huge amount to learn and immunological abnormalities and immune system and awakening the immune system and recognizing what happens to it, that has been lacking. And I think for me, that will become a more of a dominant feature. Uh, and also then understanding, as Peter said, uh, you know, co-mutations, why do they occur together at that single cell level? What is the consequence of those? It's also interesting, I mean, others might comment on it, that, uh, you know, even in drugs that we have been using now for a decade plus, like 5-Azocytidine or Decytabine, we really don't know the precise mechanism of action. Yeah, and I think yeah, definitely this has been one of the most, uh, I think, frustrating aspects of MDS is the mechanism yeah. of action, mechanism of resistance of these agents. Exactly, exactly. So I think that's why I see the next phase coming in, understanding it, 
understanding the consequences of, uh, of uh, mutations on pathways within cells and what happens if they are disrupted, and also understanding what the role of the immune system might be. And the other thing I would say also is um, I think it may be, it may be, here's wishful thinking that uh, these diseases we may be able to prevent more than treat. Uh, because if it is true that we can detect um, CHIP and its consequences, uh, and if we can prevent the consequences of CHIP at a cellular level as well as at an immunological level, then I think there is a prospect then, uh, at least theoretically, of uh, trying to prevent these diseases because by the time they have actually occurred, uh, lots of things have happened to the body as well as to the genesis of these cells uh, to respond to either a single drug uh, or even multiple drugs. I mean, you can see so many multiple drugs are coming both in the immunological space as well as in the non-immunological space. So I'm, I'm quite confident that with the kind of brain power that is now in MDS, uh, that we will be able to uh, link in all these things that we have done um, in the last uh, 30, 40 years to over the next decade to come up with, um, I don't, I've never liked the word personalized medicine or personalized treatment, but to come together with a treatment that actually has uh, not just an effect on um, controlling the disease for a period of time, but hoping to cure the disease in a non-transplant way. Yeah, and the, I think that's the goal of, of uh, I think ultimately, hopefully, will be the goal that we all strive to achieve. This was very comprehensive. Thank you so much, Dr. Mufti. This discussion- I wonder if I could make a comment beyond, sure. um, that relates to what Gulam was saying, and it reflects on the nature of what I will call the myelodysplastic syndromes. I think that we use the word myelodysplastic syndrome, and yet the heterogeneity of the disease now defined by the molecular features, immunologic features, indicates that it's a spectrum of disorders. And for us to begin treating it, we're going to need to have more specific therapies aimed at the classified subgroups, those that are classified in part molecularly and immunologically. Yeah, this is a fascinating discussion. We probably could go for hours talking about <laughs> all of this. And I hope yeah. we, do, we do at one point uh, get together back again and talk about uh, CHIP and evolution. I think there's a lot of fascinating aspects and how does that connect to cardiovascular system and all of that. But we unfortunately are running out of time. In the last few minutes... Can I just like comment, to... about the, comment about myelodysplastic syndrome versus syndromes and pre-leukemia? Sure. Yeah, sure. Just historical. I wrote a book with uh, David Galton uh, on MDS. And in that, the preface uh, was written by David uh, Galton. And those of us who know him know how uh, meticulous he was about the choice of words. Now, I had written in the preface, myelodysplastic syndrome, 
And he spent a lot of time with me on what did I mean by syndrome versus syndromes. Because syndrome <laughs> normally is a symptom complex, therefore it would be singular. But to justify it as syndromes, which Peter is saying, was if you include therapy-related MDS in it as well. So you have primary MDS as well as therapy-related MDS. Then he told me that in that context, using the word syndromes is correct. But <laughs> yeah. says now given these various diseases that we have and the heterogeneity, therefore the syndromes will, might be more appropriate, although we might sort of think about other alternative names as well. The reason why everybody called it pre-leukemia or lots of, I think most of the American centers were writing papers on pre-leukemia when they discussed MDS. But David Galton did not like the deterministic nature of pre word pre-leukemia because that is deterministic because it says this disease will change into leukemia. It's a pre-leukemia between the change into leukemia. And he felt, looking at sideroblastic anemia in particular, that there might be some types which do not transform to leukemia. Correct. So why that was, I mean, John might remember it, that that is why we had the discussion of not using the word pre-leukemia and more and more in all the texts subsequently, pre-leukemia was dropped. Yeah. Sorry, that, that was just historical. <laughs> the other aspect of the immune situation that we need might want to talk about in the future is the increasing ability of hematopathologists to recognize very, very tiny clones of T-cell abnormalities, T-cell yep. gene rearrangements, what we used to call LGL, large granular yeah. cell leukemia. We, yeah. can, we find that in anywhere from 10 to 15% Absolutely. Of our patients, whether or not, and sometimes with a PNH presence as well, and that's very, very poorly, still to say, very poorly understood. Yeah, all of that is great, and I'm hopeful, and uh, you will accept our invite for a future talk to discuss a lot of those additional aspects. In the last few minutes, I'd like to take um, the opportunity to ask you one one question. You, you are major pioneer, pioneers in the MDS field, and Many of the medical students, uh, fellows, residents, um, junior faculty look at you at your careers and all of your contributions to MDS. And with the hope that we continue to add to, to the milestones that you see in this slide in the history of MDS on both biology, diagnosis, prognosis, and therapy, um, maybe in one or two minutes for each of you, what's your advice for um, people who are starting their career and how they can go on a path similar to yours in uh, shaping the um, face of the disease. I'll start with Dr. Bennett. <laughs> well, I, I like what Professor Mufti said. You know, find a topic uh, that no one else has really dealt with and stay focused and stay with it. And uh, he, I think, has demonstrated that perfectly well, as well as Peter from the laboratory to the clinical aspects. Dr. Greenberg? Well, I would agree with John. I think uh, a student needs to find something that excites him, something that's very important for him to know, questions that he wants answered, and to continue to follow your nose, um, pay attention to uh, the literature, and make contact with individuals involved in the field. 
Dr. Mufti? I would say to the student that you are such a lucky a bunch of people because you live in, a, in an age where technology allows you to do almost anything. Any question that you want to ask, technology is ahead of the questions that we can ask. <laughs> ask a question in relation to pathogenesis or treatment of MDS and use all the technology and technological uh, connections, be it mathematicians, bioinformaticians, geneticists, immunologists, etc., to try and look at the completeness of a focused area within this heterogeneous disease. And then the rewards will come. <laughs> Dr. Cazzola? I would encourage uh, the medical student uh, to become a hematologist because hematology is uh, the discipline that combines research and clinical activity by definition. Good point. Yep. Well, thank you so much. This is definitely the longest uh, session and MDS sessions were recorded. I, I enjoyed it so much. And again, thank you so much for accepting our um, invitation for this. And I hope to have you again in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Love to see everyone. John, your okay. garden behind is beautiful. Ah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To keep up to date with the latest Hemonk news, including cutting-edge content straight from Ash 2020, visit vjhemonk.com. Follow us on Twitter at vjhemonk to join in the conversation.